He is risen. You realize we've been saying that for a little over 2,000 years. I guess not we, but the church collectively, that church that we called to rise, that church universal for 2,000 years has been able to say those precious words, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And it really is a wonderful phrase to be able to say, to be able to say He is risen. Because our hope is in Christ, is it not? Talked about that from the very beginning when we opened this morning. And because He's risen, He is a living hope. Our hope is not in some person who lived a long time ago and was dead and buried in, in His memory. Our hope is in a living Savior. Now you may be here this morning wondering, what is this hope in Christ and what is it good for? It's one thing to have hope, but what is it good for? Or perhaps it's just been a while since you've thought about what hope in God means. What does it mean to hope in God? And what impact, what significance does that have to my life? Perhaps now, as much as ever, we see sin, we see suffering, we see injustice. Banks have failed. There's threats of financial insecurity and instability. We see war, we see famine, we see families torn apart, we see children murdered. So how do we respond to this suffering, this tragedy, the insecurity, the hopelessness? How do we find hope in such circumstances? We want to be able to give hope to others, don't we? We don't like seeing people discouraged. We don't like seeing them hopeless. And Christians, more than any other people, should be able to offer hope. But are you able to offer an appropriate response to suffering and tragedy and hopelessness? We cannot pretend that suffering is less terrible or less dreadful than it is. A glib answer like this will pass or... God is sovereign, may be true, but it offers no comfort in the abstract. It also makes no sense to say that God is somehow not involved in some particular suffering. God is God. There is nothing that is outside of His control and His power. That includes the worst of atrocities. So it's understandable why some may think And ask the question, how can I trust God, specifically a God who allows this suffering? How can I have hope in that type of God? And yet the message of the Bible, the experience of believers down through the centuries has been hope. Hope in the midst of suffering. The response to suffering, even the most dreadful suffering, the response has been that the real way to find hope in the face of horror, light in the darkness, peace in the turbulence, is to turn to God. To hope, to wait for the promises of God. That's the Christian message, is it not? That's the message of Easter. 
We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul prayed that you would abound in hope. Peter says, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks of you the hope that is within you. The New Testament message indicates that this hope is usually experienced in suffering, ironically enough. But how is that possible? No, really, how is that possible? What does it mean to have hope in suffering? Why should I place my hope in God or continue to hope in the very midst of suffering? See, hope in God is one of those abstract concepts. Sounds really good until you're actually going through suffering. Then if I don't know how it works, or what hope really looks like, it can feel very empty. And this morning I want to fill up that phrase. I want to give meaning to the New Testament promise that hope is found in God and in the sign of the promise which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do this morning. We want to fill up our hope. We want to grasp this hope. We want to understand this hope. We want to be able to have an answer for the hope that is within us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning for this opportunity we have to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We thank you and praise you for this living hope that we have. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to understand anew, understand fully, to fill up our understanding of what hope is, that we might find joy and peace and confidence in the midst of suffering, that we might be able to give an answer to those who ask for the hope that is within us. Pray this in your name, amen. One of the wonderful truths of Scripture is its unity and the way it is brought together through one author using many human authors. But what this means is that there's a great unity to Scripture, a great cohesiveness to Scripture. It's no surprise to find one theme repeated many, many times throughout Scripture. So as we look at this concept of hope, I want to take you to a place you probably weren't expecting to go on Easter morning. Turn back into your Old Testament to 2 Kings chapter 7. It's around 845 B.C. You're in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a particularly devastating time for the people, more specifically for the capital city in Samaria. If you were to read from the beginning of chapter 6, you would learn that Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram or Syria, has been utterly embarrassed, and as a result, he has set out to lay siege to and capture the chief city of the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria. And the siege brought with it a great famine. And so the citizens were besieged by both hunger and the sword. Matters got so bad that some had actually resorted to cannibalism. Not just any cannibalism, the eating of their own children. It was desperate suffering. 
We don't have time to tell the whole story this morning, but it was a desperate time, a terrible time of suffering and utter hopelessness. And it's there in the darkest hour when hope seems completely lost, when the king of Samaria himself has given up hope, that we read there at the end of chapter 6, you can look up a few verses before, the end of chapter 6, the king of Samaria decides, I know what I'll do, I'll just kill the prophet of God. He sets out to kill Elisha. And so he sends a messenger who's actually an assassin, disguised as a messenger, to Elisha. There in verse 32, you read of this interaction of Elisha. He's sitting there in his home uh, with the elders of the city, the older men who served as judges and advisors, the respected older men of the city. There's almost a comical scene. Elisha, through the sovereignty of God, saw this assassin coming, and he tells the old men, lean up against the door, hold him out. So you've got the assassin on one side, pushing to get in. You've got old men leaning against the door, holding it closed. And through the door, you have this interchange, this exchange that goes on. And the messenger asks this question on behalf of the king. It's the question we are asking this morning. Behold, this evil, that is all the suffering that we've endured, behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? That term wait for the Lord is the Old Testament language of hope. To wait for the Lord is to hope in the Lord, to look to the Lord, to expect from the Lord. Why should I hope in the Lord any longer, asks the king through his messenger. And it's really a question that just about anyone could ask in the midst of suffering, isn't it? If God is in control, then why should I hope in Him any longer? Why wait for Him any longer? It's a question we're going to answer this morning. What does it mean to hope in the Lord? When we are surrounded by suffering and difficulty and pain, why should I hope in the Lord? Well, the question's been asked by the most unlikely of sources, an assassin disguised as a messenger. And so watch what happens. The king has now arrived on the scene. He's followed up his messenger, his assassin. Watch what happens in the first two verses of chapter 7, because what happens is hope is introduced. Why should I hope in the Lord? Well, hope is now introduced. In the midst of this hopeless and dark situation, Elisha says, listen to the word of the Lord. Here's the first thing you need to know about hope. It begins with the word of the Lord. Hope comes from hearing the word of God. And when the word of the Lord comes, it brings hope. It brings promise. In this case, A rather interesting scenario is put forward that is this hope. Tomorrow about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. And here we're introduced to hope, this promise. See, hope is a promise. It's a promise of something that solves my current problem. It is something that saves me from my current situation, which I am unable to bring about in my own power. And so into the darkest of situations, God promises something through Elisha which is quite remarkable. In 24 hours, there will be food. 
food that is so scarce right now that people are resorting to cannibalism, but it will be in such abundance in 24 hours that the price returns to normal. The famine's going to be gone tomorrow. This means two things. This promise means two things. One, food will be readily available. Secondly, this Aramean army will be gone. This is a remarkable promise. One that's hard to believe. The king's officer responded in disbelief. What does he say there? Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? What's he doing? He's mocking Elisha. More importantly, he's mocking the word of the Lord and thus mocking God himself, demonstrating great unbelief. The word of the Lord has come and he has responded in mocking disbelief. Here's an important question we need to ask ourselves throughout this story and in our daily lives. When the word of the Lord comes, how will you respond? How do you respond now when you hear the word of the Lord? When you pick up and read scripture? When you hear it preached to you? When you hear it taught to you? How do you respond? Paul taught the Romans saying, so faith, belief comes through hearing and hearing through the word of the Lord. The word of Christ. This royal officer heard the word of the Lord. How did he respond? He scoffed. He scoffed at the word of the Lord, at the hope of the Lord, at the promise of God. So what does God declare through his prophet Elisha? Because of his mocking response? Judgment. Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. What I've said will come to pass, but now judgment will also come with it. And with those words, hope's promise is reiterated. The promise of hope is reiterated. Now for hope to mean anything, for it to be anything, anything more than wishful thinking, it must be trustworthy. It must have a trustworthy source, and it must be something that can actually come to pass. And so in verses 3 through 5, we learn of the trustworthiness of hoping in the Lord. The next lesson we learn is that God's hopeful promises are just that, trustworthy. All the promises of God are yes and amen, as Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. And so the key scene here cuts rather abruptly. You've got two parties leaning on a door, shouting going on back and forth, and the scene cuts. And it reopens and we find ourselves outside the gate of Samaria, that gate that was just referenced where food is to be sold at normal prices. This same gate that serves as a promised sign of hope. And there outside the gate are four persons who had not heard the promise of Elisha and whose situation is even worse than those inside the city, four lepers. Not only are they suffering the same famine, the same hunger, the same threat of sword, from the siege of the Arameans. They also suffer a severe skin disease. Because of that, they're social outcasts. And we get to eavesdrop on them as they take stock of their rather depressing and discouraging situation. And they ask themselves, why sit here until we die? I mean, we could just keep sitting here and die of hunger. 
We could go into the city, but then we'll die of hunger there. Our situation's no better. So let's do this. Let's go over to the enemy. That's how discouraged they are. If they kill us, we're no worse off and our suffering's over. But if they let us live, we live. And I, I personally wouldn't put much thought into the if they let us live part. I think that was a throwaway statement. Here they thought was a quick way to end their suffering. They chose a swift death by the sword rather than a slow death of starvation. So they determined at twilight we will do just that. So these desperate men arose at twilight to go to the Aramean camp. You can picture this for a moment. No matter how bad the suffering is and discouraging it is, there's still a sense of foreboding, a sense of somberness with each step they take, a sense of sadness. But what happens in verse 5? When they arrive at the camp, When they come to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there is no one there. Imagine for a second the utter bafflement and bewilderment of these four men. Upon finding the camp empty. And I cannot help but be reminded of another similar story, this time of three women. Desperate, grieving, with great sadness, approaching not a camp, but a grave early one morning. Just as the sun began to rise. And when they arrived at that grate, they were just as shocked, stunned, and bewildered as these four lepers to find it empty. Unless, of course, they listen carefully to Jesus' words. I am the resurrection and the life. Well, hope has dawned. But what's happened? Why is the camp empty? Where have the Arameans gone? Well, here in verses 6 through 7, we learn the mystery of hope. Because Elisha gives a supernatural insight into this mystery of what has taken place. Into the inner workings that brings hope to realization. That makes the promises of God yes and amen. We get to see the sovereign God who is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. You see, the Lord caused the army of the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and the sounds of horses. The lepers didn't hear it. Those in the city didn't hear it. Only the Aramean army heard this sound. Listen, they said at twilight. Notice it's there at twilight. Do you hear that? It's the sound of an army. No, no, no. It's the sound of a great army. Then in their panic-stricken state, they start to imagine what it could possibly be, and they imagine the worst. It's just like when you're a child and you go into a dark room or maybe your parents sent you down into the basement to get something. And the more scared you are, the more your mind starts to play tricks on you and you start to imagine all sorts of terrible things are taking place or about to come upon you. And so they say, the king of Israel has somehow managed to get the entire Hittite army, the entire Egyptian army, to come and take us out. Run! And like scared children ascending the basement stairs, forgetting what they were supposed to fetch in the first place, 
These Arameans left everything behind them, fled for their lives into the desert across the Jordan. And do you notice the timing at twilight? What's significant about that time? Well, it's the very same time the four lepers set out. You see, God was sovereignly working to draw those lepers to the point of desperation. And at the exact moment they begin to enter the camp, the Arameans flee the camp. You can imagine maybe the last soldier's feet are leaving the camp as they enter the front. The reason hope and belief in the promises of God is worth trusting in is because of this mystery. That there is a sovereign, almighty control by God. The same God who promises and speaks and whose word comes is the one who brings it to pass and will fulfill what he has promised. Now notice in verses 8 through 11 the good news that settles upon them. Notice how the importance of this miracle begins to settle upon the lepers in these verses. When they first arrive, they don't know, first off, what's happened. They don't know if the army is going to come back, so they begin eating and drinking everything they could find, which makes sense. It was twilight, dusk was setting. They were cooking their meals when they heard this sound. So there was a ready-made meal for these lepers. Then they begin to grab everything and anything that looked valuable and begin to go hide it away. Now I imagine in their somewhat emaciated states that it, this didn't go on for too long. They were pretty worn out. Imagine they kind of, out of breath, full bellies, completely exhausted, collapsed next to each other, panting heavily. And it was then that the full weight of what they were experiencing set upon them. They realized the army isn't coming back. It's then that they realized what good news this was. In verse 9, they say to each other, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. It is a day of salvation. It is a gospel day. That's what good news means, right? Gospel. They said this is a gospel day. It is a day of salvation. And what we are doing is not right. As John Woodhouse notes regarding this passage, the kindness of God must not be made into an opportunity to grab things for ourselves. We must not imagine that the gift of grace is a means for gain. We must not imagine that a desire to be rich can be compatible with the grace of God. So they say, forget the loot. We must go and tell. We must proclaim this gospel, this good news. We must tell of this day of salvation. The promises of God are good news and must be proclaimed. The lepers made no attempt to explain what had happened when they arrived again at the city gate. Notice again that gate coming into view where the gospel is now proclaimed. That sign of promise is brought back into view. But they make no attempt to explain the miracle. I mean, how could they, right? They just explain what they saw. The camp is empty. Once again, reminded of those women who 
upon finding an empty tomb, immediately ran to proclaim the good news. No explanation for how this miracle could have happened. No scientific explanation was available. Only the tomb is empty. He is risen. Problem is that not everyone believes the message of good news, do they? Especially when it sounds too good to be true. And so, many skeptics become, in the face of God's promises... Many skeptics, many become skeptics in the face of God's promises. In contrast to those who hope in God's promises, who wait for them to be fulfilled. Verses 12 through 15 introduce us to some of Hope's skeptics in this passage. Verses 12 through 15. The king needed to hear this good news. He needed to hear of the salvation that had come. But how does he respond? responds with great suspicion. He had even heard the promised hope Elisha had given. He had been on the other side of the door. But instead, he responds in suspicious unbelief. Instead, he provides what he believes is a much more plausible explanation. It's a trap. You see, the unbelieving mind cannot accept the goodness of God. It can only see evil. It cannot see God's goodness in the midst of suffering. This is the type of explanation the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious leaders had for the empty tomb, isn't it? Somebody stole the body to pretend Jesus rose from the grave. He couldn't possibly have actually risen. They even paid off the guards to repeat this story. Even in the face of the guard's testimony of a great light and earthquake, which, by the way, no one else saw and no one else felt, just like the Aramean army, they still remained skeptics. Skeptics, those who will not believe, will turn the promise of hope into a reason to doubt, a reason to distrust. Just as Peter reminds us, many will say the Lord is slow about his promise, but he's not, is he? He is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Well, thankfully, there were some servants of the king who I think they had likely heard Elisha's words, or at least a report of his words. And while they may not have had the faith of Elijah, they were not so hard-hearted as to disbelieve entirely either. Ironically, their reasoning here in verses 12 through 15 is nearly the same as the lepers. If it's a trap, those we send to investigate will die like the rest of us anyway, so there's no, it's a, nothing to lose in checking it out, right, King? Again, they may not have the faith of Elijah, but they at least want it to be true. Like the father who cried out to Jesus over his son saying, I believe, help my unbelief. The servants wanted to believe in the promises of God. Now the king acquiesces. He sends two chariots. They went after the Aramean army as far as the Jordan River, somewhere around 20 to 30 miles. And all along the way, what did they find? Clothing, equipment, anything that would slow a soldier down had been discarded as they fled the sound that the Lord had caused them to hear. 
And so these two chariots return and tell the king, it's true. The camp is empty and they're not coming back. The army has fled. Salvation has come. It is a day of good news, a gospel day. It's interesting. If I can draw a comparison yet again, like these two chariots, we find two disciples who, though disbelieving upon hearing the report of the woman, had to know. They wanted to believe it was true. I particularly like the story John tells of he and Peter racing to the tomb to see if it could possibly be true. And it was a race. John actually says, I won, Peter lost. And they didn't find discarded weapons and clothing when they looked in the tomb, but you know what they did find? Discarded linens and a face cloth neatly folded. He really is gone. He's not coming back to this tomb. He is risen from the grave. Salvation is here. It is a day of good news. It is a gospel day. That's the report. And then we get to see the promised salvation in verses 16 through 20. Surprise, surprise, the word of the Lord has come to pass exactly as he promised it would through Elisha. We see it there at the end, do we not? After plundering the camp of the Arameans, there was so much fine flour and barley, they were able to sell it for a shekel or two measures of barley for a shekel. Just as the Lord had promised. This miracle, this salvation from the Arameans could hardly be overstated. The word of the Lord came. A promise of salvation was delivered. And like we asked originally, the question we asked, what we've noted, is that when the promise of God comes, when the word of God comes, it demands a response. God's promises have come. His word has been preached. How are you going to respond? Are you going to respond in belief or unbelief? Well, an example is put forward of what disbelief results in. Here at the end, we see exactly what happens to one who doubts the word of the Lord, who puts the Lord to a test. Notice in verse 17 that the royal officer is placed at the gate to administer everything going on. Uh, But it's there that he's trampled to death by the people. And all the excitement, all the commotion, they trample him to death. This gate was the symbol of promise. It was at the gate that hope would be realized. It was at the gate that the Lord moved the hearts of the lepers to go and find the empty camp. And now it's at the gate that disbelief is punished. Three times in verses 17, 18, and 19, we read, at the gate. This salvation at the gate, you see, does not belong to those who despise the word of the Lord. Salvation does not belong to those who do not believe. 
To despise the word of the Lord, to refuse to believe the word of the Lord is to despise God himself. And that has to have consequences. And it does. I cannot help but once again think about the one who said, I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That one was the sign of the promise, the hope of the promise. But do not mistake that the same one who is salvation to those who believe is judgment for those who despise him, who despise the promise of God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. There is a horrifying judgment coming for all who will not listen to the word of the Lord. Who will not hope in the word of the Lord. You see, the word of the Lord has come to us, has it not? That's the message of Easter. We have been born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This experience of Israel in those suffering, troubling, difficult days reflect in a shadowy way our troubled world and troubled times today. And so our message must be to those who are looking for hope, hear the word of the Lord. There is a promise to be taken seriously. Not a price of less expensive food in the supermarket tomorrow, although that might be nice but a promise and hope of sins forgiven, of life after death, of no more pain, of eternal life. So how will you respond to that message? How have you responded to that message? If you are here this morning, either having never heard this message or hearing it anew, do not leave here without responding in belief, crying out to the Lord for His mercy and His grace, confessing your sins, calling upon him who died on the cross for your sins to forgive you of those sins and believe that he was raised again the third day, that he sits in heaven, that he will rule over a new heavens and a new earth. If your response to that message is belief, it will enable you to live hopeful in a world full of misery, pain, and suffering. Because you know what's coming? The day of salvation. It's called the day of the Lord. All throughout your Old Testament and New Testament. There is a new heavens and a new earth. This life is not all there is. This life under the sun is a brief preparation for the life to come. So will you prepare? Or will you, like the disbelieving royal officer be trampled under God's wrath in the day of salvation. Our hope is living. He is resurrected from the dead. And because he lives, as the hymn goes, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And because he lives, life is worth living. And because he lives, I have a hope and a future. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the precious reminder this morning of the hope, the living hope that is Jesus Christ and all of the promises that are bound up in Him as our hope, as the sign of our hope. Father, would we live each and every day looking to, setting our eyes on the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Would we set our eyes and our hope and wait on Jesus Christ? I pray for any in this room this morning who have not responded in belief. Father, spare them the judgment of being trampled under your wrath. Would they call out to you in belief? Amen.